Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Well, um, can you guys hear me okay in the back there? I'm speaking at this volume. Okay, wonderful. Well, such a privilege to be with you. And I want to talk to you today about... um, well, something that I, I believe is uh, the most important topic we could discuss, and it's brought to us via Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles, and uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 is where we'll start. <clears throat> invite you to pray with me and just ask the Lord to open your heart and open your mind to what he would have to say to you through his word. As I already said, this is the, this is the, the most important topic we could preach on and discuss. It's the most important theme. It's the central theme of all of reality, not just this church, but all of reality. Um, and it's the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. And if if that doesn't make sense to you, if you're thinking, I don't know why that's so important, I would would invite you to pray and ask God to open your heart and your mind to his truth. So Father, we come before you. We thank you that you're good, you're kind, you're gracious. Your favor to us is so much beyond what we deserve. Um, We deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. We deserve being cut off forever from your presence, and yet you, through your great love with which you loved us in Christ, you've rescued us and redeemed us, and you've brought us to yourself. So I pray that you'd open our eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ, of his supremacy and all-surpassing value and worth. Um, Lord, please use my words, speak through me, to convict our hearts and challenge us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Chris, I don't know if you could turn it up just a little bit. My voice is is a little bit weak this evening, so um, it'd be helpful. It's not that I like to hear the sound of my own voice. I promise you that. (laughs) But um, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, if you have it in your Bible, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. And if you're looking at the context that he refers to Christ. So Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things 
whether on heaven or on earth, to making peace, sorry, making peace by the blood of his cross. All right. So the main point of this message, this passage, is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation for all things. And he is therefore worthy of the worship and the devotion of all creatures, of all reality, of all creation, and of all people in particular. Jesus is the foundation for all things, and therefore he is worthy of the worship of all people. In verses 15 through 16, and also in verse 18, we see that Christ is Lord over all creation. Notice there's a parallelism between verse 15 and verse 18. In both of those verses, we see the same word repeated. Do you notice it? Verse 15 versus verse 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the what? The firstborn of all creation. And then in verse 18, we see, again, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the what? The firstborn from the dead. And so it's that in everything he might have the preeminence, that he might be the one who's, who has supremacy in all things. So the firstborn of all creation, I believe that's speaking about this, uh, the, the, uh, the physical, the original created world, that Jesus is the firstborn over that. Firstborn speaks of preeminence. It's not that Jesus was the first created being. In fact, this very, the very context of this passage tells us that all things that are created are created through him and for him. Therefore, he is not in the category of created things. He's in the category of creator, right? John 1 tells us the same thing, that, that by him, everything that was made was made. So Jesus is not in the category of, of things that are made. He's in the category of creator, of maker, right? And so this word firstborn here, it should not be confused with the idea that the Jehovah's Witness would tell us that Jesus is the first, the first created thing, first created being, and that's why he's called the firstborn. It's the idea of preeminence. It's the idea that he is Lord over creation. That's why the New King James Version actually translates it. He's the firstborn, not of all creation, but over all creation. Um, and, and then we see that he's also Lord over the new creation. When it says he's the firstborn from, in verse 18, it doesn't say, uh, over creation, but he's the firstborn from what? From the dead. You see that? What is that referring to? What does it mean that he's the firstborn from the dead? His, it's a reference to his resurrection that of this new reality. When Jesus rose from the dead, the, the new creation began, right? When we talk about eschatology, often we talk People, when they use that word eschatology, they're, they're thinking about the end times. They're thinking about the second coming of Jesus. They're thinking about future things. But in reality, when we talk about eschatology, we're, we're talking about a time period that began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that's when the new creation order broke into this old creation. Jesus is the first fruits from among the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first fruits of the new creation, right? So he's preeminent 
in, in the original physical creation, and he's also preeminent in the, phys- in the, in the new creation, right? It's an already but not yet. We, we do long for and await the return of Christ. We look forward to that, but we recognize that there, and we recognize there is a new heavens and a new earth coming, a new creation that we will experience fully. It's not totally yet here, but it's already here in the person of Jesus Christ and in the new creation that he brings to people. Anyone who is in Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus, the scriptures say you are what? You are, not you will be one day, but you are a new creation. So the new creation order has already begun um, we're living in the last days. We look forward to the return of Christ, but we're already experienced, we've already experienced that eschatological event of the new created order breaking in with the resurrection of Jesus. And so that new creation, Jesus is also preeminent in that, just as he was in the original creation. And that's why I believe at the verse, end of verse 18 is that in all things, he might be preeminent, both in old creation as well as in the new creation. Um, <clears throat> verse 16 as well says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. So first point this, morning, uh, this afternoon is that everything exists through and for Jesus Christ, right? This is simple. I wanted something, you might be thinking, I wanted something deeper, something I didn't already know. Um, but this is, this is the... Uh, the most foundational, crucial truth that we can be reminded of today, that all things exist because of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, and for Jesus Christ. The end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. The Colossian church was facing a number of different threats. It's apparent from the context that there was... There was uh, different false teachings that people were maybe flirting with or being exposed to within the the church that received this letter in the first century. And one of those main threats, most uh, theologians and church historians believe was a proto-Gnostic teaching about secret knowledge. Remember the Gnostics are into secret knowledge and and, uh, that movement really didn't get started until a little bit after uh, the time of the New Testament, but there was already some of those teachings um, working their way in and some of this philosophy of, of if you could just if you could just figure out this this secret hidden knowledge then you'll achieve a greater level of spirituality there's a lot of gnosticism in the new age movement today and we need to be careful about those who would come to us with the latest secret to deepen their spirit to deepen your spirituality that would come to us with secret knowledge. Let me give you the secret to success. There's lots of YouTube ads out there about discovering the secret to unlocking the inner mysteries of the universe, right? Uh, it's that kind of thing that the Colossian church was being threatened with, the worship of angels and spiritual experiences that they were longing for to try to achieve some greater level of spirituality. Too often, Christians are looking for something more, some little-known esoteric insight, a key to greater spirituality. But let me tell you this morning, the key is right here in the open. The key is right here 
It's not a secret. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus, and it's all for Jesus. And, and this way, the passage, this passage answers the essential questions about life, the questions that everyone asks at some point. How did I get here, and why am I here? Where did I come from, and, and what's my purpose, right? And here, in this passage, Colossians 1 answers those questions. At the end of verse 16, we see, how did you get here? According to verse 16, how is it that you're here today, that you exist? What does verse 16 say? Through Jesus Christ, you were created through Jesus, by Jesus. Jesus is the agent in creation. And why are you here, according to Colossians 16? For Jesus, right? You exist for him. This isn't about you. It's not about me. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sooner we realize that, then we will experience the secret, if you really want a secret, then you will experience the secret of true joy and, and meaning in this life. When we realize what's been clearly and openly declared for the last 2,000 years that Jesus Christ is Lord and that through him all things came to exist and all things exist for him and therefore we exist for him. Second point I want to bring to you in verse 17 is that, and again, it's very simple. Jesus Christ sustains all things. So all things exist uh, by him, through him, and for him, and all things are sustained by him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him, in Christ, all things hold together. Think about that for a moment. Think about that reality. From galaxies to the cells in your body, Jesus right now is sustaining every single aspect of our reality. He is sustaining the existence of all created reality in this very moment. And I would ask you today, do you know this Jesus? Do you know him? He is holding you together at this very moment. Every atom and your body is held together right now by Jesus Christ. The ground below your feet is sustained by him. But do you know him? Have you trusted in him? Have you trusted in his work on the cross? His work of redemption for you. And if you say, yes, I have, I do know him. My next question would be, do you treasure him? Do you treasure him? Do you value Christ above everything else? Because I know that oftentimes in my life, I do not. Oftentimes I'm distracted by so many other things and so many other um, things that I would put as a greater priority than Christ. What is it that you most value in this life? Take whatever it is. Take money, the greatest possessions that this world has to offer, the greatest fame that this world 
has to offer, whether it's achievements in sports or in business or in, um, in uh, bodybuilding or romance or whatever it might be, those things, you take all of them and you put them in a scale. Good things, family, um, material possessions, all of those things, you put them over here in a scale and you put Jesus Christ on the other side and he outweighs them all. He is more valuable than anything else. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Do our lives look like we actually believe that? Verse 18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that in all things, he might be preeminent. In the first creation and in the new creation. For in him, verse 19 says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is God. He is Lord. He's the sustainer of life, the giver of new life. Do you value him accordingly? Are you looking for life in him? Are you looking for life in the recognition that you get from other people or the, the followers you have on social media or, the, or whatever it might be? Or are you looking to the one who sustains you in this moment? Are you valuing and treasuring Christ above everything else? The third truth I want to bring to you this afternoon is that Jesus Christ is the foundational and ultimate solution to every problem we face. He's the reason we're here, because of him that we've been created for his glory. And he is also, it makes sense then, that he is the foundational and ultimate solution to every problem we face. Verses 20 through 21, in verse 20 it says, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself, God the Father, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. <clears throat> what was the greatest problem that you and I faced? What was the greatest issue that you have ever faced in your life? If, if I were to ask you, some of you might raise your hands and say, it was this, and tell a story about a trial that you went through. And someone else might raise their hand and tell another story about something different, but equally challenging that they went through. But let me tell you this, the, the greatest problem, the greatest dilemma that any of us ever face is the exact same thing. And that is our sinfulness before a holy and righteous God. Are you aware of that this morning? Are you aware of the weight and the depth of your depravity and your sin and your rebellion against a holy and righteous God who would have, he would be perfectly just and perfectly good in damning every one of us to hell because of our rebellion towards him. And it is a gift from God when we become aware of that, of how much we need him, of how desperately in need we are of rescue, of salvation. The greatest problem we've ever faced is our sin before a holy God. And Jesus Christ came and he was the solution to that problem. God sent his son in love 
For God so loved the world. In this way, he loved the world. He sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, would not be cut off forever from the presence of God, but would have everlasting, eternal life. Our sin was the greatest problem and God has provided the greatest solution and the only solution to that problem. And his name is Jesus. He came, he lived the perfect life that you and I could never have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. The wrath of God, he took upon himself and three days later, he conquered the grave, the enemy of death that we could never have conquered. So is he not capable of bringing about reconciliation in every lesser problem that you face in this life? I think there are many Christians who look to Jesus for salvation, and that's wonderful, but fail to see that he is also the solution for every other thing that we face and that the wisdom of his word must be paramount in our understanding as we interact with all the different areas of crisis and and, and, and problems and fears and disappointments and systemic injustice, the political upheaval and corruption, that Jesus Christ is a solution for all of those things as well? Is it hard to believe that if he solved our greatest problem? We as Christians should not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should proclaim him unashamedly. I love the Mexican believers in our ministry in Mexico, in our church and in the school, how unashamed they are of the gospel. How unashamed they are that we are a Christian school and that we believe that Jesus Christ is the only, only Savior and the only Lord. And how they're not like a lot of, of Christians in the United States that try to be really careful how they say things. So they don't want to offend people. They just put it out there. They're not ashamed of the gospel. We don't need to be ashamed. If we really love people, we're going to speak this truth because we recognize that in Christ, there is, the, there is hope, that he is the only ultimate hope for the broken world that we live in. And let us be reminded this, morning, this, this afternoon that of how God is working out this reconciliation. God is reconciling the world to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his cross, the blood shed on the cross. And yet, in our present time, God continues to work that out, to apply that reality through his Holy Spirit as that word is preached through the church, by the church. Do you follow me? God is reconciling all things to himself and he's doing it through Christ. And Christ has a body. And where is his body? Right here. And what do you think his body should be doing? If this is what Jesus has done, we should be about the ministry of reconciliation. This is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18. Now all things are of God. All things are, are his. This is his world. We don't need to apologize for preaching the gospel. This world belongs to Christ. He is Lord of all. All things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
Brothers and sisters, we have, through the apostolic deposit, we have the word that they left, the teaching that they wrote down for us, that's been entrusted to us from generation to generation. We have been given in our generation the ministry of reconciliation. This is our mission. It's an all-encompassing mission. Notice in this whole passage, from verse 15 to verse 20, there's one phrase that appears, there's one word that appears in every verse. Now, in most English translations, one of the times the word gets swapped for a synonym, see, it's a little harder to spot, but it's the same word in Greek in every verse. Anybody guess what that word might be? Verse 15, verses 15 through 20. One word that re, that's mentioned at least once in every verse. All. Yeah. Some translate put everything, or it says everything. If you have that in your translation, in Greek, it's the same word where it says all. All, all, all. Does all really mean all? <laughs> is Christ really Lord of all? Paul is, emphasi- uh, is emphasizing that truth. All things. All things are created by him. He is the one to have supremacy in all things. So our mission then includes that all-encompassing reality. What do I mean by that? Again, he is worthy to be worshiped in all things, in every area of your life, in every sphere of our society. Jesus is worthy. His wisdom speaks into every issue. So in Puerto Escondido, in our school, we believe that this applies to the area of education. We believe that Christ is Lord of our school, that Christ is Lord of education, that education should ultimately point to Him, right? It doesn't mean that we don't use math books and science books and God has revealed things to us in nature. We, we look at his created order. He's given us minds to understand it. But we recognize at the end of the day that all knowledge, all true knowledge comes from him. All truth, if it's genuinely true, is God's truth. Right? And so he is Lord supreme over all things. The early Christians believed this. Um, Regarding education, something that motivated me when, when God called us to Mexico, something that motivated me to go, that was that the Lord was working in my heart and, sh- and, and showing me this, this reality of how God has used education over the centuries to bring about revival, to bring about the salvation of nations, transformation of cultures, um, Christian education, education rooted in the belief that Christ is Lord over everything, that Christ is supreme, that he is preeminent. In the, in a, shortly after the resurrection in the early church, the book of Acts, we see that there are 3,000 um, souls saved. Acts chapter 2, we could say that there's just a few thousand Christians really in the world in the year 50 AD, more or less, right? Not a, not a huge movement yet. 
And yet by the time we get to 300 AD, you know, 250 years later, there are an estimated 6 million Christians with another 2 million most likely having been martyred for their faith during that period. So we see this explosive advance and growth of Christianity in those those first 250 years. There's been different reasons given as to why the church grew. Obviously, we know it's through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, but what were the means that the Spirit used? What were the ways in which God worked through his church as they preached the gospel? What was it that brought them into relationship and contact with other people where they were willing to be open to hearing the truth that was being spoken. And there's a number of different factors that could be considered, the the radical love and sacrifice of the believers. We know that during some of the periods where there were plagues in the Roman Empire, that in Rome itself, the pagans fled and left their, their sick loved ones behind. And the Christians, many of them stayed risking their lives to take care of the sick. Uh, there were things like that where there was a sacrificial love and a laying down of their lives. Um, obviously, their, their um, valor and courage in the face of persecution and being burned at the stake. The people saw that witness and that testimony and it spoke to a deeper reality. It spoke to the, the truth of what they were professing that they could go to their death with joy, with gladness because they belonged to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. They belonged to an eternal Savior who had promised them eternal life. And so all those things were significant in converting the Roman Empire to Christianity. But something that often gets overlooked is the role of education. The um, scholar James Davison Hunter in his book, To Change the World, documents quite thoroughly the role of education in the first 250 years of the church and how significant it was in the growth of Christianity. He talks about how the Christians started schools, um, how they produced lots of literature, but they also, something that was significant, they adapted, and I would say um, in, in many ways it was an adaptation, but in other ways it was a continuation of a Hebrew Christian concept, but they adapted to some extent the idea of paideia, which is the, the Greek system of education. of, of um, Paideia is the, the idea of a, of a Roman, or the, I should say the Greco-Roman um, concept of, of education, of a young man being raised up to become a good Roman citizen. That he would be formed completely in Roman thought and philosophy and lifestyle, that he would embrace that and become a good citizen for the, the empire, for the emperor. The idea of paideo is this concept of not just giving people certain academic um, exposure and leading them to, to know certain things, but it was to form them in the very core of their being to be loyal to Rome, to be Roman. And, and that idea, it's interesting, Paul uses that word in Ephesians 6 when he says, fathers, to train up your children in the teaching and admonition of the Lord, he uses that word paideia, this idea of this, the forming of a human being, the forming of a, of a person in maturity, every, that every part of their life, the way they think about reality would be shaped by this process of formation. 
Paul's saying that's the job of, of Christian parents. That's their responsibility with their children. Education, we teach this at our school, first and foremost, is the job of the family. It's in the jurisdiction of the family. And as teachers, I remind our teachers on a regular basis, we're not the primary educators. We're coming along in an assisting role, but our goal would be to encourage parents to be the ones who are raising up and training their children. And that's why it's so important for us to do seminars and workshops with families where they can come and hear the truth of God's word and be saved and actually do that job well and point their children to Jesus Christ. Um, but that was something that was adopted by the early church. And in some ways, it was a continuation of what God's people had already been doing because you see that concept clearly in Deuteronomy 6, that it's along the way, fathers are to teach and parents are to teach their children when you walk along the road, when you rise up, when you sit down, when you lie down, all of life, that you would be teaching your children about reality under God as king, under the lordship of our God, and for Christians under the lordship of Christ specifically. And so it was through that idea that the, the uh, early Christians really changed the culture. That's discipleship is what it is. It's forming the whole person in a way of thinking, in a way of acting, in a way of, of, of viewing the world what you feel and think and believe in the very core of who you are. Another key aspect that God used was that these Christians, these early Christian educators, they did something that the Greco-Roman culture never had done, at least as far as I know. Maybe there were a few fringe examples, but by and large, education at that time period was for the rich, for the, the wealthy, for those that were in the nobility. It wasn't, it wasn't accessible for the vast majority of people. And the Christians changed that. The Christians reached out to the poor. And they brought the poor into their schools as well. And uh, their overall attitude towards the poor influenced the growth of Christianity as well. It was something that God used. They looked outside. You know, our school, we... We're, uh, our, in our um, commitments as a school and as a ministry, 50% of our, of our uh, admissions, first-time admissions at the school or enrollment at the school have to be from non-Christian families. We're committed to that as a value because we want to reach non-believers with the gospel. Um, we don't want to just become a school for exclusively for Christians. And anyone who's starting a school has to pray through that. And I understand there are people that have a strategy of, you know, something different. But, but in our, our conviction is that we do that because we believe like the early Christians did, that light is more powerful than darkness, that the kingdom of God is more powerful than the dominion of Satan. And that um, as, as we, yeah, we do have parents sign a statement so they understand what they're getting into. And our teachers are equipped to preach the gospel and to, connect all of these things to the reality of Jesus Christ as they're teaching on any subject that they would be able to lead students back and see how those, those things lead to, to the beauty and glory and the supremacy of Jesus. Um, but that, that's been something that's, that's challenged us to say all, all of life is for God's glory. He is worthy of the praise of every person in Puerto Escondido. So we want to open our doors 
and let people come in and hear and be exposed to this truth and see them transformed by it, right? We don't need to be afraid of the world. Jesus has given us his spirit. And yes, we want to be cautious. We don't send our kids to a school where they're being bombarded with, with atheistic truth all day long from their teachers. But here we're, bringing, we're doing the exact opposite. We're bringing kids from non-Christian families into school where they're being exposed every day to the richness of God's word and the principles of God's word and the, and the gospel itself. And, uh, and I think that's aligned with what the early Christians did and what contributed to the growth of the church. So Jesus is worthy of being worshiped in every area of life. Pray for us that God will continue to use our ministry to bring glory to Christ, that the, dark, the darkness will be overcome by the power of the kingdom of light. And I want to close by just looking at verses 21 through 22 and then ask some questions in response to these verses. Your posture, as you think about the supremacy of Jesus, I think about raising our kids. I don't want to raise my kids in fear of the world. I want to raise my kids in such a way that the world's going to be afraid of them. And by the world, I mean the powers of darkness, that the wicked system within this world, those who would be promoting agendas that would lead to destruction and death and all of that, that those people would be threatened by my children. And I think that's the attitude that we ought to have as Christians, that we really know this God. We really know this one who's sovereign, who's supreme. He's preeminent in all things. We don't need to be afraid of the darkness. Yeah, we want to be cautious. We don't want to have anything to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. We want to be careful not to walk in the, in the, in the way of the wicked or, seat, or sit in the seat of the scornful. We want to be able, we want to be guarded and we want to have good accountability and believers around us. But at the same time, when we have that, we can go out and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the one who has authority in this place. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. He's Lord. Whether you know it or not, one day you're going to bow your knee before him. You're going to confess it. So today I want to tell you that he is Lord. You have the opportunity to turn to him in faith and repentance, to turn from your self-worship, to turn from all that, that you think is going to make you secure and satisfied and significant. Turn from all of that and turn to Christ. All right. <clears throat> Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above approach before, uh, above reproach before him. I, I like how the, the NLT translates this. Verse 20, in the New Living Translation, and through him, which sometimes gets it really good and other times gets it way off. But this one's, I really appreciate the way they've put this. Verse 20, and through him, through Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. Right. So do you recognize that? This is the cosmic level. 
Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, everything in heaven and on earth to himself. You might say, yeah, I agree with that. Christ is Lord. But do you know this truth? Has he reconciled you? Have you, through faith, received, believed, and trusted in what he's done? Trusted in that work of reconciliation? If so, then he has set you apart to be his minister of reconciliation, to be pure and blameless in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, that you would shine like a star in the midst of the universe, that you would be someone who would be a light in a dark world. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We can overcome through the blood of the Lamb as we trust in Jesus and his faithful word. So here's the questions for reflection. We want to respond to God's word and not just um, be hearers only. We want to be doers. So I want, to, I want to invite you just to pray. Quiet your heart as you look at these questions up here. Quiet your heart before the Lord. Um, and as you reflect upon them, ask, ask yourself, what are you currently valuing more than Christ? What do you treasure right now more than Christ? If someone were to look at your life, what foundation are you building your life on? What foundation is your thinking based on? The third one, have you been reconciled to God through faith in Christ? Is that true of you? Are you living as one who has been re reconciled? And I say, yeah, sure. Are you living as one who has been reconciled, holy and blameless and above reproach? How does God want you to be a part of his work of reconciliation? How does God want you to be a part of his work of reconciliation? Be specific when you ask, answer that question. Like in these days, in this week, what changes is he calling you to make? What people is he calling you to minister to or witness to? What broken relationships is he calling you to mend? Who is he calling you to ask forgiveness of or to seek forgiveness from? And then lastly, are you working from a place of having been reconciled? Are you serving Jesus from a place of having been reconciled? Or are you striving as if it were up to you? Are you resting in that reality? Do you think it's up to you to determine your identity? So just take a moment to think about these. Just pause for a couple of minutes. Maybe the Spirit will direct you to one of those in particular or a couple of them. Just read through them. Um, read through them slowly and ponder these questions. What are you currently valuing more than Christ? You may want to write some things down if God brings things to mind that action steps that you should walk in this week in repentance and faith or tell somebody, tell your spouse or a friend. How does God want you to be a part of his work of reconciliation? Well, maybe if you need more time, you could always take a picture screen uh, of that and, and, and meditate on it later. But I hope that the Lord has revealed some things in your life that 
need to change. We all have areas where we need to grow. Um, so I hope, I hope that something in here has spoken to you that will impact your life and give you greater joy in Christ and greater appreciation of his supreme value and worth, his excellency, his beauty, his love, his splendor, the delight that's in his presence, and that your life would be lived from a place that all of, all of that you do would flow from that appreciation, from that worship of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for speaking to us. Lord, there's so much confusion in this world, so many gimmicks and prom- empty promises that would lead us in so many different directions. Even in the church, things that would lead us astray. So Lord, guard us. Guard us. Keep us pure. I pray for this church, for this family, that you would guard their hearts and their minds and strengthen them in the gospel. Strengthen them in the truth of who you are and what you've done. And give us, Lord, give each one of us here the faith to behold Christ, to see him as worthy, to see him as the greatest treasure of the universe. Give us eyes to see, Lord. Soften our hearts. Help us to truly believe that you are the hope, that Christ is the only hope for this world, the ultimate and foundational solution for every crisis, for every problem. There's nothing too hard for you. You are reconciling all things to yourself. So we pray, Lord. We pray for revival in Grace Harbor. We pray for reformation in the church. We pray that the glory, that your glory would cover this place, this community, this city, this region, like the waters cover the sea. We know that one day that will be true. So we pray for it to come. We pray for your kingdom to come now in our lives, Lord. Use us in whatever way you see fit. Help us not to fear the darkness, but to walk in the fear of you so that we will not fear anything else and that we will push back boldly the forces of darkness, that we will storm the gates of hell. They will not prevail and cannot prevail against your church. And so as with boldness and confidence, I pray for the Church of Grace Harbor. I pray for Kaleo. I pray for Kazi Chapel, for any other local church represented here, Lord. Use us to that end. Use us. Help us to be reminded of our purpose. We are ministers of reconciliation by your grace, for your glory. Use us, Lord. Here we are. Take us. Strip away the things that would hinder us. Strip away the all the nonsense, all the distractions, all the, the, the gimmicks and the, the things that would, that would promise us some spirituality apart from the beauty and the purity of Jesus alone, the supremacy of Christ. Lord, open our eyes to those things and reveal any lies that we're believing, Lord, about you, about reality, about ourselves. And lead us in the truth. Lead us in the way everlasting Lord, not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. For your steadfast love 
and your mercy and your patience and your faithfulness. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the death of your son, his body that was given for us, his blood that was poured out for us. We just give you all the thanks and the praise because you are the only one who's worthy. You're worth every effort, every sacrifice. You are worth it all, Lord. You are worthy, worthy, worthy. No words can describe how great you are. So, Father, we pray these things in the great, matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.